Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine's big interview with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Today we're talking to Dr. Richard Lofthouse, a former lecturer in history at the University of Oxford, who now works as a journalist. Richard has made two trips to Ukraine in the past few months and interviewed a fascinating array of people, including the founder of the Georgian National Legion, which is a special operations unit that has been working for Ukrainian military intelligence since 2016, a Crimean Tatar who runs a cafe in Kyiv, and a couple who were forced to hide in their basement while Russian troops rampaged outside. Richard, welcome to the podcast. You recently returned from your latest trip to Ukraine. Tell us why you went in the first place and what you found when you got there. Uh, Thank you very much. And hello, Saul. Very, very happy to be on the podcast Um, Yeah, so last year, I was obviously following events going right back to Russia's invasion. And like so many other people, I was somewhat outraged at what Russia was doing. And the more I read about it, the more I wanted to do my bit. That was all this amounted to. And I got wind of this volunteer organization in Ukraine, Car for Ukraine, and made contact with them. And then with some of their British colleagues here in Britain who were organizing vehicles to drive over. And I thought I could pitch in and maybe get involved. And that all started to come together in the new year. So we went over in twice now in 2023, once in February and once in April. Okay. Now, during your trip there, I I should mention you're a former uh, university lecturer. You taught history at the University of Oxford, but more recently you've been working as a journalist. So I think your journalistic instincts must have kicked in and you thought, I need to talk to a few people when I'm there. Um, You know, who knows? how useful this material is going to be. Well, I think it it will be very useful. And we're going to hear a little bit of it on the program today. But tell us about some of the people you spoke to. And in particular, this extraordinary character, Mamuka Mamulashvili, who uh, started the Georgian National Legion, which is playing such a significant role in the war. Yeah, thank you. So obviously, on the first trip, I went to Lviv and then beat a fairly rapid retreat. And that felt like a very significant Um, trip in and of itself. But on the second trip, there's a key Irishman, Patrick McIntyre, who's just enormously in contact with a very wide network of Ukrainians. And he said to me, well, what we want to do this time is to go on to Kyiv and deliver some additional vehicles, one of which uh, we want to take to the Georgian National Legion. And I have to be completely honest with you, Saul, I hadn't heard about them up until that point. But it was enough catnip 
for me to think, well, that's actually very interesting. And so basically, at the first week of April, find myself driving the extra nine and a half hours from Lviv in the west to Kiev, arriving just in time for this pre-appointed interview. And it was all rather extraordinary because we turned up in this black uh, Grand Cherokee Jeep that I had acquired ex- expressly, really, for, for Mamuka because that's what we were asked to to get. Um, he, he, he was absolutely plain. He wanted um, SUVs and or pickup trucks. Um, so I bought one and we drove it there. And But we arrived in a, you know, with minutes to spare for an interview that had been pre-agreed at a plate glass office building in downtown Kiev, which all seemed quite strange. So the atmospherics of this were, were quite immediate. There were uniformed soldiers with guns who came to the entrance and we all shook hands and they immediately ushered us inside. We sort of went up a winding staircase to a corner block of the office. And it was obviously a vacated open plan office with with various rooms. And it looked very temporary. There was a slight smell of wet plaster. And there was um, Mamuka um, and his aide-de-camp and they offered us coffee and uh, subsequently came back with uh, takeaway coffees. And it was all quite civilized. And we were all together. So there were about six of us. And he was very relaxed and said, well, everyone's welcome to stay. He knew that I was a journalist. And I had my lapel mic with me and set him up. And we just plunged straight into an interview. Uh, I had a few questions and done a little bit of research. And it went from there, really. So we'll hear a little bit of the uh, interview in a moment. But before we do, and I, I should say, actually, I mean, I'd, I'd heard a little bit about the Legion, but none of the detail. So this is a bit of a coup for you, I think, Richard, isn't it? Because I haven't heard uh, Mamuka being interviewed anywhere else. But before we hear it, can you tell me a little bit about your impression of him as a person and, and also a little bit what, he, what did he actually look like? So he's um, of medium height, probably about five, five foot seven or eight but built very very strongly and he's actually i i should uh without wanting to second guess the interview he's the president of mixed martial arts in ukraine so he's he had just returned himself from lviv so we were both absolutely bamboozled with being on the road for hours and hours and hours and i think we're both somewhat fatigued when we when we met but he had just taken part in a charity um mixed martial arts match the the, a couple of days earlier so he's incredibly strong, and he's been soldiering since he was 14, um, initially in Georgia, and then subsequently, obviously, he's moved to Ukraine to help Ukraine. Um, so he's a bit of a legend, actually. Can you tell us something about you, the impression you formed of the motivations of the Georgian Legion? They've been around for quite a long time, haven't they? And were you convinced that they were there for the right reasons? Yes, that's a very fair question. Um, that was initially my um, question as well, Patrick. Um, they've, they were founded nine years ago in 2014. So the point of departure for Mamuka to set it up was, of course, the annexation of Crimea. Um, but his own involvement in you know, countering Russian aggression, that, those were his words, that's how he would put it, um, go right back to the 1990s. But he's, he's incredibly calm and relaxed in person. He's e- extremely careful about what he says. He only speaks in defensive language. And I think the key point there is that he anticipated really what I was probably going to say with some of the other debates that have gone on about the Azov Regiment and other extremists and this sort of thing. And he said that when 
the big invasion took place last year, he was inundated. They had 20,000 guys wanting to join up. And he said he interviewed those who made the shortlist. He said, we didn't want anyone extreme. We didn't want any Nazis. We didn't want any fascists. We didn't want any um, extremists of any stripe. Only ex-professional soldiers, and many of them, one might surmise or guess, um, special forces. And that's what's he's, what he's ended up with. Um, but it was an administratively a very tough burden when you had an invasion on the one hand and operational requirements of extreme urgency. At the same time, you've got this absolute tsunami of young guys, some of them not the guys you want, trying to join you. Okay, well, let's hear just a little bit of your interview with Mamuka Mamulashvili. So thank you very much for um, agreeing to speak to us. Could you start by sketching the shape of this war for you personally? When did you first come to Ukraine? Oh, I created Georgian Legion in 2014, so it's already nine years that we're here. But generally, I'm taking a fight with Russians for the last 30 years. So, you know, the war is familiar for us. We have a professional uh, formation of forces, and Georgian Legion is the largest foreign formation within the Ukrainian army. So, we're doing uh, the fight for the last nine years. Georgian Legion became uh, big uh, after full-scale war. So we started recruiting more soldiers. Georgian Legion is specialized only on special operations. So when the full-scale invasion began last February, for listeners who are not familiar with the sequence of events, just give us a brief recap. There was a particularly important engagement around the airport. Am I right? Yeah, we were the first to meet Russians in the nearby the Hostomel airport, actually. And, you know, it was quite surprising for everybody to see Russian forces so close to Kiev. Yeah. So we were the first to engage in a fight with helicopters. And, you know, it was quite unusual to see it so close. What was the size of your force, the actual by Georgian the Legion, by men or by... Blood? There were 70 guys. 70 guys. So you were massively outnumbered. Yeah. We did not expect them to be that close, actually. We just arrived uh, and in 30 minutes the fight started. So we were used to go to East for a fight. It was quite unusual. The particular narrative around the airport is quite well known at this point. But tell us more about what happened then, later, subsequently. Later, you know, more Russian forces arrived from Kiev region. And actually, you know, it was unexpected for Ukrainians too. Though they uh, mobilized very fast, it became more or less easy for us when artillery started to work. Yeah. So generally we were in a Kiev region from Irpin and Bucha to Borispil, uh, and after the deoccupation of the region, we were moved to southeast of Ukraine. What's the nature of your interaction with the Ukrainian army? How does that work? We are the contractors of the Ukrainian army. Uh, we are the contractors of military intelligence of Ukraine. We are a part of military intelligence of Ukraine, in fact. So we communicate, you know, from 2016. Because uh, in 2016, 
Parliament of Ukraine accepted the law about uh, integrating foreigners in the Ukrainian army. Mm. So Georgia Lidin was the first uh, formation that took uh, official contract with Ukrainian armed forces back in 2016. And of the composition of men who are soldiers who are fighting with you, for you, how many nationalities is it? Is More it than 30 nationalities. 30? Yeah. Right. How many of them are British? Currently, maybe about 30. 30. I don't uh, really count. I just count generally what forces we have. But, you know, yeah. not by nationalities. But we have rights. Was Am I right in saying that when the war began, when this particular war began a year ago, you had a big increase in yeah. guys who wanted to join? Yeah, from 100 to 2,000. From 100 to 2,000. Yeah. So you had a big administrative headache trying to figure out who's good, who's an idiot. That sort of thing. About more than 20,000 went through selection of... 20,000? Yeah. How did you have the manpower to process so many? You know, we had part of Georgian Legion who was recruiting. So, and me personally was talking to everyone who was accepted to a Georgian Legion because we need to exclude, you know, radical youth, extremists and, you know, Nazis or those guys. So that's why I was interviewing them myself. I think that was a very, very wise. Um, was that a major issue? You had all. I mean, you just yeah, had. Of course, you yeah, know, yeah, a lot yeah. of people came just, you know, to shoot. Yeah. We need ideologists uh, who came, you know, to defend people, not to shoot somewhere. Yes. Um, operationally, I don't know what you're allowed to say right now, but can you give us some clue of what's happening right now to your men? Actually, Georgian Legion is not one whole formation. It's Georgian Legion consists of squads professional squads that are doing different operations. Because it's all, as you said earlier, it's all special operations. Yeah. How many men are there in a squad? You mean uh, special operations squads or how many squads we have? Both. Uh, and so how we many? We have more than 30, 32 squads. 32 squads. And in a squad there is from 12 to 16 men. Right. Or with artillery squad, uh, additionally, about 20 men. Right. And is the equipment that you're given, we wanted, we were talking about this in the car Coming here, um, tell listeners what you receive in equipment and also what you need. How does it sit? Are you short of stuff? Do you need things? Not only us, General Ukrainian Army. There is a shortage of different caliber of uh, artillery shells. For our specifics, actually, we are best equipped in the Ukrainian Army. Yeah. We have NATO standard rifles. We have actually very good quality of equipment. But uh, we also are using artillery, we're using mortars, and we need... Uh, uh, there is very big shortage of mortar shells. Right. I mean, do you have a sense of the easiest way to re-equip or where that will come from? Or are you dependent on the Ukrainian army? We are depend- dependent on the uh, military intelligence of Ukraine yeah. because we are equipped by uh, official structure. And uh, as soon as they get uh, something for us, they are giving it to us. But, you know, we are receiving some stuff, but unfortunately we are receiving everything uh, that is light. So, Yeah, it's taking a long time. Yes, unfortunately. And yeah. uh, for, for, for some countries it's just a time. For Ukraine it's human lives. Yes. I mean, another thing that I wanted to ask you, obviously... Uh, we've come here today as volunteers with some bits and pieces for you in a vehicle, but is that the easiest way for people like 
asked to help to bring vehicles. Is that something that you need a lot? Yes, of course. You know, we have a lot of men, and but generally we need, you know, armored cars, yeah. light armored cars. So it is better than nothing. Yes. Just civilian cars, it's better than nothing to move squads. If they get under artillery fire with those cars, you know, it's it's not going to help much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating stuff, Richard. I mean, particularly the detail about the makeup of the Legion. You might be led to assume from the name that it was going to be mainly Georgians and presumably anti-Russian Georgians. I makes the interesting point, as a quick aside, that basically the Georgian population is very anti-Russian, but the government is very pro-Russian, which I'm sure is part of the reason why he's operating outside the country now. But that detail about the makeup, um, the fact that at least half of the Georgian Legion are foreigners from 30 different nationalities and 35 Brits, did that surprise you? I was quite surprised that he was so forthcoming with that detail. Um, I mean, I think I think I noted before that depending online, I've seen some sort of confusion. It's the Georgian National Legion, but I've also seen it referred to anecdotally as the Georgian Foreign Legion, and that that explains um, that confusion because it's obviously a multinational force. Yeah, he wasn't getting into any uh, operational details about what's going on at the moment. I and mean, we can speculate, of course, those downed uh, Russian planes over Russian territory. Um, extraordinary, isn't it? Could have been friendly fire. Was it special forces? These guys, their job is sabotage, uh, reconnaissance. Uh, it could it, it could possibly have been his guys. But it was also interesting to hear that they actually took part in the fight for Hostomel last year. Did you get the sense that's them just being in the right place at the right time? Because it's probably pretty fortunate they were. Well, I think, yeah, absolutely. All of those things, the way he describes it, of course, is that he sort of had 70 men to throw at Hostomel. Kiev is only 10 kilometers away, of course. So he had the, the advantage of being very, very nearby. I mean, I've noticed, I mean, a Wikipedia entry for the Hostomel battle is fairly good, but there are some other more serious attempts to write up the, those initial sequences of the invasion, which make no mention at all of the Georgians being involved. And I think that's that's quite interesting, given that Russia was throwing their Chechnyan fighters into that particular activity. So I do think that well, it's kind of an interesting further debate, isn't it, about whether history is written at a first draft and then you get second, third and fourth iterations and then onwards over time. We're almost at the point now, a year in, where we're starting to uncover additional levels of detail about specific instances or battles or set pieces in that initial invasion that were not obvious at the time. And this is obviously one of them. It's a small detail, but the the way Mamuka talked about it, and based on other subsequent information I've I've read about, just minutes really into getting there, they were in a full-scale shooting war. And even he was surprised. That, that's what he said. And they ran out of ammunition as well, I understand. So it was a, a very, very, very hot engagement. Okay, well, that was all fascinating stuff. We're going to take a break now. Do join us for part two. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. At Evernorth Health Services, 
We believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the second part of this week's big interview with Dr. Richard Lofthouse, a former lecturer in history at the University of Oxford, and now a journalist who recently made two trips to Ukraine. Uh, can we broaden it out a bit, please, uh, to talk about how Georgia sees its relationship or Georgians see their relationship with Russia? Do you think this is um, the hostility they feel towards Russia is part of a a broader trend which you can discern throughout the uh, Russian periphery. I'm thinking particularly of Kazakhstan, where Russia seems to be losing its ability to control events there. Is that, do you think that's something that's part of a bigger trend that will actually impact on Russia's ability to continue the war? Well, I mean, I like you, I'm wondering, we're all wondering what's happened to Lukashenko at the moment in uh, Belarus. And I mean, there's there's no... Apparently, no ends to which Russia won't go to fiddle with former Soviet states. And I think that's the broader, I think Luke Harding, the Guardian journalist, and referred to a, the broader situation that you're referring to there, Patrick, as a neo-Soviet regression by, by, by the Kremlin over many, many years, going back to 1991. And what we're seeing is a very, very emphatic phase in that that the exact terminus of which we, we don't know where that's going where it's going to go but i i think like most people i've sort of gone back to the crimea in 2014 and scratched my head as to why the west didn't say more or do more then there's obviously been a whole pattern if you really want to kick things off it was really when russia invaded georgia in 2008 and we all tend to forget that georgia is in the caucasus the caucasus viewed from brussels is on the periphery of european knowledge and interest. It wasn't always thus, uh, as, as you both know so well, if you go back to the early 20th century, mid 20th century, and well, 19th century as well, the, the Caucasus were very central to all sorts of other spheres of interest. But in, in the recent decades, you know, Georgia's not really a, been a major concern for the West. And that was blatantly clear when Russia invaded in 2008, and we did absolutely nothing. Richard, just to go back to your uh, former life as a history don, uh, we've been making lots of historical comparisons inevitably on, on the podcast with the battles and the politics, in particular with the Second World War. What conflict does the war in Ukraine most remind you of? Oh, that's a really loaded question, isn't it? I mean, I, <laughs> I, I mean I, my own area of research when I was a professional historian uh, once was World War I. So I suppose just a, a very, very ordinary level of observing this particular conflict. I mean, the, the footage and some of the uh, drone and video footage and head cam footage that we've been seeing, um, the use of artillery, the use of trenches, and frankly, running battles or where you can hear the enemy 
a distance of 50 or 100 meters talking in their dugouts. I have to say, in that sense, I think of World War I and the very many memoirs and other written evidence of individuals who took part on the, the Western Front. Um, but I think in, in terms of the broader um, comparisons, I think one has to be very, very careful here about distinguishing between strategy and tactics and the broader broader machinations of, of politics and, and great state actors. And I think, I mean, so in terms of Russia, I, I think it takes you straight back to the 19th century. And um, there, you know, there was this thing called the Crimean War that we all tend to forget about. Um, Tsar Nicholas, early 1850s. I mean, you go back to there and you start to engage with the kind of running running series of engagements between Tsarist Russia and the Ottoman Empire. And these kind of annexations and toings and throwings. Um, in fact, one of the one of the people I travelled out to Ukraine with and um, spent a lot of time talking to in the in the car was a um, Crimean Tatar called Erfan, and he's currently a refugee in Scotland with his wife and four children. But he owns a cafe in Kiev, and we went there. But on the way out, talking to him, you know, his big date was seventeen eighty three, which is the, the the year that Russia annexed the Crimea. Long, long before we get to 2014. And so I think the only proper way to engage with any of this is to take a very, very long view and remember that Russian game-playing is a very, very long business. You sort of have to become a historian to start unravelling it. Richard, you mentioned Crimea. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? We forget, of course, the long history of Crimea, the Crimean Tatars, the, the persecution that they faced uh, throughout their history. But do you get a sense, not just from conversations with him, but also from talking to Ukrainians more generally, that the idea that we could get some form of peace by bartering Crimea, that is, you know, by by allowing Crimea to somehow remain under uh, the Russian sphere of influence is a bit optimistic. I mean, frankly, are they more determined to hold on to uh, Crimea than that? Yeah, thank you. That's a really, um, I'm glad you brought that up, Saul. I think one of your earlier guests actually sort of mentioned that possibly Crimea would be a bartering chip. But I've also heard that some of the American officials may see it that way because of the long-standing Russian Black Sea fleet being based there. But in terms of who I spoke to, who I met, um, and the Ukrainians I spoke to, that's absolutely not how they see it. I, I sort of, if you look at the geography of Ukraine, it's it's easy to sort of start with the Donbass and these kind of faux people's republics. So you've got sort of Luhansk in the top, uh, in the northeast, and then Donetsk and Zaporizhia and then Kherson as you come down from the sort of top right down in a crescent, and then you come to Crimea beneath Kherson. And I think when I look at the map with a fresh set of eyes and based on the conversations I've had, it would be more logical to start the other way round. And start with, you know, you go due south from Kiev to Kherson, and then there are those, you know, a couple of highways that go into Crimea. It wouldn't really surprise me if that's where Ukraine is going to train its sights for some sort of counteroffensive. I mean, I, it's not for us to say, and I've obviously got no idea, but absolutely they want Crimea back. It's part of Ukraine. So let's talk about some of the other uh, characters you met when you were there. And uh, you mentioned in your original email to me, Richard, about this couple who who hid in a basement in a sort of butcher type area, it sounds to me, although you can be a bit more specific about that, um, for 36 hours while the, the Russians were rampaging outside. Can you tell me a little bit about that couple and, and, and what they witnessed? 
obviously I was taken out on a, we went out on a big drive around and we went up to some of those uh, fateful suburbs, um, not just Buca, but um, Borodyanka um, and Erpin. Um, these are delightful suburbs, um, fairly affluent suburbs that sit just beyond the Kiev city border. There was a confusion of narratives. So what I'd been told, the couple that you're referring to there, um, Dimitri and Anastasia, we actually had a long chat in a cafe in Kiev. They actually hailed not from Buka, but from Ivankiv, which is the little city much further north, really halfway between Kiev and Chernobyl. So it was one of the first Ukrainian townships to be run over by the Russians when they came down from the north on February the 24th last year. And what was extraordinary about sitting down and talking to, to this couple was just the overwhelming level of detail, the level of terror uh, that they had experienced, mostly through disinformation, but also a lack of information. That's what they said again and again and again, that there was just this total blackout. And initially, you know, there was sort of, I mean, we've seen this in other narratives. You know, you could, in some cases, you could speak to a Russian conscript because Russian is a language that's held in common and it would be sort of edgy but not brutal and then you'd go back inside your house but then there would be all these rumors circulating that something terrible had happened and some of these rumors were disinformation but some of them turned out to be true and then you get sort of more later on during the 36 I think it was 36 days that Ivan Kiev was occupied much more really sinister things happening. Um, but in particular, D D Dimitri had a drone, and but he also knew that the drone was dangerous because if you have a, a sort of off-the-shelf drone, it can be tracked by anti-drone software and potentially they can track that right back to the person who's launched it. And he knew that. So he said that he was taking it to pieces and burying the pieces in different gardens under cover of night and then trying to reassemble it to use it for a small window of time to help the Ukrainian army. But I think I think what was overwhelming really about the narratives was the fact that a lot of people died from starvation. It was the sort of grandparents' generation who remembered World War II who had laid in pickled vegetables and other meat and meat dishes in jars that kept people alive. And if they hadn't done that, more people will have died from starvation. And I think my other summary thought at the end of this, I mean, I was quite overwhelmed, I have to say, we were talking for a couple of hours. My overwhelming feeling at the end of that discussion was, A, how raw it is, but also, again, as I said earlier, at a year's remove, I felt this huge weight of responsibility as a sort of former historian to transcribe it all and make sure that these eyewitness accounts end up in the right archive so that um, they are uh, set down in stone while it's all still fresh. Um, the other thing was just how much we don't hear in the Western media. So the brutality and some of the crazy stuff, they had seen a tree decorated with human entrails as a sort of joke by Russian invading troops. And I don't remember reading about that anywhere. It may be the sort of thing that we don't run for whatever reason but I don't think people really have a full grasp of the sorts of things that were going on.
Richard, you're a man of many parts. You're a uh, historian, you're a journalist, but you also got an interest in the motor trade. Um, so tell me something about um, your experience. of You, you drove the, this vehicle to Ukraine, but once, once you get there, uh, you saw quite a lot of how, you know, kind of ordinary peacetime kit is being turned into uh, significant military assets. Let, let, can you tell us a bit more about how that's happening and that regular vehicles are being used to help the Ukrainian war effort? So there are four or five Ukrainian volunteer civilian organizations who are, have been appealing for civilian vehicles um, from all European countries, not, not just Britain. But I noticed that Britain's been disproportionately generous in delivering them. And one of the reasons for that is because a, a pickup truck is cheaper to buy used in the UK than it is in other Eurozone countries. I also think the farming community and, and generally there's quite a lot of them here. Um, so they've been quite a rich source of supply. So I just checked this morning. I mean, Car for Ukraine says it's now delivered 240 vehicles, most of them pickup trucks in the past year. But of those, over 130 are from the UK. Um, so it's disproportionately been a, a, a UK contribution. Um, I started by buying a Ford Ranger back in January, and that was the first vehicle I drove over. And then for the second trip in April, I actually acquired and donated two more. One was a, a long bed Nissan D22 from 2003, which is very ideal because it's got a nice long bed, a truck bed. Um, and then, of course, the Jeep for Mamuka, who had specifically said he wanted SUVs because he's trying to transport small squads of men fast in and out of engagements. So it's sort of fast extraction. The main type of donation, the pickup truck, and that was the main operation here. Um, so not, not Mamuka in this instance. Um, we drove them to a workshop in Lviv. And this is totally manned by volunteers. They're trying to do day jobs as well. And they're, what they're doing is, I think it's what the Ministry of Defence call a technical. They've got um, 10 millimetre thick steel plate and they're cutting it out in a workshop. Uh, they're tearing the door cards off and they're putting this armour plate into the doors, partially across the windows if it's a crew cab vehicle with a, with a back seat. Um, so you can put your head uh, behind that, that plate across the back window and all around the engine. So all the vulnerable bits of the engine, the grill, um, behind the grill, around the battery, around the actual engine block, and uh, obviously around the radiator, all of those uh, vulnerable points are armoured. Um, this adds over 300 kilos to the weight of the vehicle. And when you, <laughs> you sort of try to close one of the doors when it's been, it, it's, it is heavy. And this is why it's pickup trucks or nothing really, because they've got a one-tonne payload so you can sort of put 300 kilos of armor into it, no problem, and still mount a gun or a turret. Um, the vehicles that we saw that had been then completed by a second workshop in the Lviv area, um, I'm not going to say where they were, painted military green. They're donated to the Ukrainian army when you go over the border. We had all the paperwork to do that. Once you've gone beyond the border into Ukraine, you're effectively a volunteer driver for the Ukrainian army. And you've got the paperwork to show that. So it was quite, it definitely had an air of an adventure about it. Let me tell you, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was had a bit of boy's own. Um, we we're all quite, quite excited about it. The, um, endpoint, some of the vehicles were going to be used for just as trucks for support and supply. The Ford Ranger, I was sent a photo of it entering Bakhmut district, but it did not have any armor on it. So it was going to be used for drones, drone flying. 
and drone recovery. Um, but the other trucks we saw, we've seen fully armored trucks where they had uh, fixed turrets to shoot heavy caliber machine guns in a forward facing position. So you're going to set that truck up in a particular setting and shoot forwards. Others had a rotating turret that would th- shoot 360 degrees, but with a lighter caliber weapon for sort of fast in, fast out. Great stuff, Richard. Um, and we will make sure we, we put the website, the carforukraine.com web address in the program notes. Any future plans? Are you intending to head back to Ukraine anytime soon? Absolutely. So the plan is hopefully to go one or two times more this year. Um, my budget's more or less exhausted. I'm, I'm only a journalist, so I'm, I'm not in a position to buy more vehicles. I'm possibly, possibly one. I'm going to try, try and scrape together enough for one more pickup truck. Um, but I've also been trying to spread the word. So we've had, I've had the promise of another one from a friend, and I might end up driving that over. I think just the main thing to say here is that it's particular individuals at the core of the British side of this group, in particular this Irishman Patrick McIntyre, who deserves a shout out because he's He's based in Coventry. He's married to a Ukrainian, and he's got a very strong link to the country. But he's he and the others, some of the others, have really put their lives on hold. They've been going over two or three times a month since last March. And ditto on the Ukrainian side. You've got fantastic individuals who are all volunteers. They're all trying to hold down lives and day jobs, and at the same time, effectively taking on second jobs here to make this all happen. And I must say, I was enormously impressed the efficiency the lack of bureaucracy the fact that these vehicles are being turned around and put in the ukrainian army's hands and then really they're on the front line within a month of being dropped off in lviv um it's absolutely astonishing and i think we all i mean i felt absolutely blown away by it in a good way and um i would like to help some more well that's brilliant work uh, well done you and well done all those uh, people who are, who are supporting you yeah, Richard, lastly, you mentioned the, um, uh, the much-anticipated uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. We've, we've been um, speculating all we can do for weeks now. Did you get much sense of optimism from the people you spoke to in Ukraine that this could be a proper game-changer, or are they just quietly determined to keep the fight going for as long as it takes? I think that's a very good question. Um, I detected a difference in atmosphere between the first trip in February and the second in, in, in April. And I think we all need to remember that the atmosphere and sorrowful reality of this war is, is changing by the moment. I think that ordinary Ukrainians are resigned to it um, in perhaps the same way that if we cast our eyes back to World War II, there was a sort of sense of inevitability and regret at having to fight Hitler for a generation who remembered the Western Front. Um, they were not, um, there was so much written about 1914 and how everyone was sort of jubilant. I don't want anyone to think here that that jubilation is it's not what I saw. And in particular, on the second trip, we were taken to see a, a freshly dug cemetery in Lviv, which again was being mentioned before in this podcast, mm-hmm. but it didn't exist a year ago. There's an old cemetery in Lviv and then there's a, a freshly dug cemetery. And we were there on a very cold day, and there were small huddles of Ukrainians paying their respects. And there were hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, like a whole field of graves with flowers that had not even turned yet. They were f- freshly put there. And I think we were all moved to tears within a very short period of time because this is the hard reality. 
that Ukrainians are paying a very, very high price for this. But to answer to your question, I think they are absolutely determined. And the terrible thing about this, it, it is like World War One. Once you've shed a lot of blood, you, you can't really go backwards. Um, you can't suddenly say, well, okay, we'll just throw in the towel and give the Russians a bit of this and a bit of that, fine. Um, that, that's not at all how it presents itself to Ukraine. And so I think they would probably, people I've spoken to would say, fine, we can all talk about this counteroffensive, but it won't be necessarily decisive in the way that we all hope. And we might need to keep going a lot further into the future. So I, I think it's very unknown and uncertain. Great stuff. Thanks so much, Richard. Really appreciate you coming on and best of luck with your future trips. Here, here. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I was, I was really interested in uh, what Richard was saying about the technical aspects of these missions he's been on. Uh, it takes me back to my old war reporting days again. <laughs> During the Balkan Wars, we used to trundle around in an old um, Land Rover, an old sh- uh, long wheelbase Land Rover, which had been specially modified in exactly the way that Richard describes, that is welding on bulletproof steel plating not on the engine around the engine as as in this case but but around the kind of cab area and a bit at the back to protect you uh, from fire from the back well it was pretty effective we did occasionally have um have reason to be grateful for the up armoring but it made it incredibly difficult to drive and i wonder if that's the case with these ones on one occasion we were driving over mount igman in uh, the snow to sarajevo that was the only way you could get into sarajevo through these old logging tracks and I lost control of it on a bend, and we ended up sort of tumbling down a hillside, uh, which was quite dramatic, and had to rely on the British Army to get us out. Well, that's enough of my war stories. Saul, uh, what did you make of it? Well, it was great stuff, wasn't it? It makes you realise, Patrick, it makes you feel slightly humbled, actually, that people like Richard are, you know, putting their mouths where they're... (laughs) People like Richard are actually acting on their impulses and going out there and doing something useful. I mean, we're trying to do our bit with the podcast, but actually physically uh, getting out there, spending a bit of, bit of money. But also, it's such an interesting perspective, really, given that he's a former historian. Uh, he goes out there, he interviews people. I mean, that interview with the uh, the Georgian National Legion founder, Mamuka Mashmu Lashvili. I mean, that's really quite a coup for us, I think. And I think people would be fascinated to hear about that sort of cool, calm uh, delivery he had about what he and his men have been doing during this conflict without giving away too many secrets, of course. Yeah, he was also um, rather moving, I thought, describing his visit to the freshly dug graves uh, in in uh, Lviv, which is, of course, referenced uh, by, which, of course, was referenced by uh, Julius Strauss a couple of weeks back. Um, and also his, his uh, with his historian's perspective, uh, saying how this contributes to Ukrainian defiance and, and thinking back to the First World War, where you get to a point where so much blood has been spilled that uh, you, there's really no choice but to go on blood calls to blood and hence this refusal to accept the idea of actually trading land for peace and determination to go on until every inch of Ukrainian soil is liberated 
Well, in the chat with Richard afterwards, not broadcast, uh, we talked about the possibility of ourselves getting involved, uh, maybe taking out something useful. Well, watch this space on that one, Patrick. But in the meantime, if any listeners are interested in contributing to Car for Ukraine, they should go to the website. That's Car for, as in the numeral rather than the word, Ukraine, all one word, dot com. And we'll also have the address on our program notes. Yeah, also off air, uh, we were speculating about the number of, of uh, vehicles that will now be available thanks to London Mayor Sadiq Khan's policy of uh, making uh, London a ULES zone. That means that old diesels and things like that will no longer be allowed to drive into the London area without paying massive penalties. So there'll be a lot of these vehicles on the market, some of which we may get our hands on. As Saul says, watch this space. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday when we'll be bringing you the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.